Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. I'm one of your hosts, Rebecca Fackner, and I am running solo this week. Uh, we are um, in the midst of the dog days of summer as I record this, and in the last couple weeks of August and the first couple weeks of September, uh, all four of those of us who produce this podcast are either moving or going on vacation. So we're doing things a little bit differently. Last week, you heard Becca take a solo run at Edwin Stanton. And this week, I am taking a solo run at two smaller stories that are a little bit too small individually for their own pod. But together, they kind of fit a theme. And together, we decided to combine them uh, for one sort of thematic episode. And the theme is uh, both of these stories involve a bombing. And we also wanted to do this because it's now September. And in the great fall tradition, it's going to start to get cooler. And our thoughts turn to spooky Halloween coming up. And we've decided to lean into the season. And while this story is not spooky or scary, it is both of these stories are certainly uh, gory and dark. The two stories I'm going to tell you, they both involve a bombing. And they take place geographically about a block and a half apart. But that is where their similarities end. Uh, The first story is going to be the bombing, the assassination of uh, a man named Orlando Letelier. And the second story is going to be the Palmer bombing. So we'll get started with uh, the Letelier bombing. Dr. Orlando Letelier was from Chile uh, in South America. He was an economist and he was for a while Chile's ambassador to the United States. Uh, So he was here in Washington for a little bit. He gets recalled back to Chile and has several different ministerial posts, uh, including Minister of Finance uh, under President Salvatore Allende. Now, President Salvatore Allende was a left wing, he had a left wing government, basically almost socialist. Uh, This is in the late 60s and early 70s. And it is not well known today, but in the 60s and 70s, Chile was actually one of the most stable democracies in Latin America. So they were very stable, kind of center left. And Letelier was a very respected economist and very close to uh, President Allende. Uh, He's recalled back in early 1973, and later that year in September, there's a military coup in Chile. There's uh, something called uh, a group of military guys, which is called a junta. They are going to take over. They're going to kick out the existing democratically elected government in Chile, including President Allende and obviously all of his ministers. Now, if you work for the first, the old 
regime, uh, the Allende regime, uh, obviously you're not going to have a lot of success with the new uh, military regime. Uh, the military junta is headed by a general named Augusto Pinochet. So if you've ever heard that name, this is kind of where we're at uh, in 1973. Pinochet's regime is going to imprison a lot of former government officials, including uh, Orlando Letelier. He's going to be, in fact, the first government minister to be imprisoned. He's going to stay in prison for about a year and is tortured. Uh, he is uh, put in a re-education uh, camp and it doesn't go all that great for him. He leaves Chile. He gets out of prison under the condition that he flees the country and does not come back, which I would imagine after they put him in a torture camp, he was all only too willing uh, to get out of Dodge. He goes to Venezuela for a brief moment with his family. He's got a wife and three children. But he is very quickly going to decide to come back to Washington. He has contacts here. It is far enough away. He feels pretty safe. And uh, so he moves to Washington, gets a job with a think tank in the city. And he continues to write and speak out against this new military dictator in Chile. He becomes basically the face of the resistance, the sort of uh, expatriate resistance uh, to Augusto Pinochet, which is obviously not going to win Orlando Letelier a lot of friends back home with the new regime. He thinks that he's safe, though. He speaks out. Uh, he receives death threats, uh, but he believes that he's far enough away to be safe from uh, harm uh, by the Chileans. And he continues to sort of lead the resistance uh, to the military dictator in Chile. Now, uh, on September 21st, 1976. So we're going to flash forward about three years. Uh, Orlando Letelier is driving to work. He stops on his way to pick up his assistant. Her name is Ronnie Moffat and her husband, Michael. They are driving down Massachusetts Avenue and around something, a traffic circle called Sheridan Circle. And when they get in front of the Irish embassy, which is still there, uh, the uh, bomb that is underneath Letelier's car explodes, killing both him and Ronnie Moffat. Now, contrary to what you may see if you watch a lot of TV or movies, bombs do not routinely go off in Washington, D.C. That's actually not how we roll around here. So this is unusual. It's very frightening. And there's obviously going to be a large investigation into uh, the Letelier bombing. It becomes pretty obvious that the, somehow the Chilean government is involved, either directly or they've paid someone, put out a hit on Letelier. It is not clear at first, but this is too sort of specific of an event for it to happen at random. The Chilean government is, of course, going to deny any involvement in the Letelier bombing, but they would, wouldn't they? So the evidence is once the evidence is uncovered, it continues to lend 
credence to this idea that the it was sort of sponsored by the government or the secret police in Chile, which is called the DINA, uh, that they are in some way involved. Uh, and the reason is, the reason that there is such a strong suspicion that some sort of secret police or clandestine uh, agency is involved is the bomb itself. So when they recover the fragments of the bomb, it's very small. It's a very small device. Letelier drove a teeny tiny little car. This is 1976. We're in the midst of the oil crisis. So he has a small car. He is obviously driving. His assistant, Ronnie Moffat, is in the passenger seat and her husband is behind her. The bomb kills Letelier. It's underneath his driver's seat. It actually almost cuts him in half. But Michael from the back seat walks away with barely a scratch on him. He has a bump on his head, but despite being in a bomb or in a bombing, he's basically okay. His wife, Ronnie Moffat, would have walked away perfectly safe and fine, except she gets a random piece of shrapnel that explodes from the bomb that's going to catch her on the neck and she's going to bleed out uh, before uh, help can get to her and save her life. So if it wasn't for that very random sort of terrible luck of uh, the shrapnel, she would have walked away from the bombing uh, without a scratch on her as well. So this is a very small bomb and bombs like that are made by someone who knows what they're doing. This isn't someone who strapped a bunch of C4 to the bottom of a car. This is someone precise, someone who knew what they were about, someone who got clearly had some kind of training in order to build this bomb. So uh, this is very specific and that's going to lead the investigators to believe that the Chilean Secret Service was involved. The CIA does a report and about about two years later, the CIA is fairly certain that the Chilean Secret Service is involved. They're going to prosecute an American uh, who works for the DINA, the Chilean Secret Service. Uh, they're going to put him in jail. Uh, and he actually serves uh, over 60 months in jail and is released and actually to this day is under witness protection somewhere in the United States. Uh, the the In Chile, they continue to deny that they were involved. They say that the man, uh, the American, uh, Michael Towns, was uh, acting on his own behalf. Uh, and they continue to hold that line right up until the Pinochet regime is going to be ousted in 1994. So for 20 years, they deny that they are involved uh, in this uh, bombing. Once the regime changes in Chile, uh, the Americans are allowed access to the secret DINA files, and they discover that not only was this sanctioned by the Chilean government, that Pinochet himself had signed off uh, on uh, the assassination of Orlando Letelier. So this actually came from the top. Uh, Augusto Pinochet is going to end his life. Uh, he dies 
rise of cancer in the uh, early mid 2000s, and he's going to end his life in exile. He is never prosecuted for this crime, uh, but it is very. They have his signature on a document that says that he approved the assassination and the uh, hit on Orlando Letelier. Today, if you walk by the area, there they have Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Moffat have not been forgotten. There actually is a, a memorial to them uh, on the sidewalk right next to the spot where they were uh, the bomb exploded, and it's right outside of the Irish Chancery, uh, right on Sheridan Circle. And you walk on the sidewalk, and you see this unusual circular. Um, memorial sort of protruding from the sidewalk. It has the pictures of both Letelier and Ronnie Moffat. It has their dates. And it's this very lovely sort of uh, almost uh, blink and you miss it memorial right in the spot next to uh, where they were driving when the bomb exploded. So you can check that out. And we talk about this uh, story and we point out this memorial on our Dark Side of DuPont tour. Other bombing I want to talk about, like I mentioned, uh, these are both of these bombings are going to be right in the same area in Washington, which is super unusual. The uh, second bombing, we are going to go physically around the corner to R Street, and we're going to go back in time a further 50 years. So we're going to situate ourselves uh, in uh, July of 1919, uh, and we're physically in front of a uh, townhouse at 2132 R Street Northwest, which was then and is now a very quiet neighborhood street. Lots of townhouses. There, uh, The house is right on the edge today of Embassy Row, so there are several smaller embassies. In fact, this particular townhouse is next door to the Embassy of Mali, down the street from part of the Brazilian and Argentinian embassies. So it's in a very quiet, very lovely residential area of Washington. And it was as well in 1919. Today, the home is a private home, and it was back then as well, but it was owned back then by a very public figure. The figure that owned the home in 1919 was the Attorney General of the United States. His name was A. Mitchell Palmer. A. Mitchell Palmer has largely been forgotten now, but he plays a really interesting and sort of pivotal role in uh, American history for this briefest of moments. A. Mitchell Palmer was a square-jawed, sort of law and order type of Democrat. He was very interested in burnishing his national reputation. And uh, like everyone else in Washington, D.C., A. Mitchell Palmer wanted to run for higher office. It's 1919, so the presidential election is just about a year away. And like everybody else, he's got his eye on the Democratic nomination. Woodrow Wilson is very ill, clearly not going to run for another term. And so Palmer figures if he can look tough and look like a good law and order Democrat, he will be make a strong case to appeal for the Democratic nomination. 
he in particular wants to look tough with uh, anarchists and communists, both of which had had a lot of activity in the United States in the previous few months. There have been a lot of anarchist activity and a lot of communist activity. Now, it is worth mentioning anarchists and communists are not at all the same thing. But for Palmer, he didn't really seem to make a distinction between the two. They were all bad and they all needed to be dealt with and they're all subversive. Anarchists were more the bombing type. Uh, communists were more the sort of riot and worker strike type. Uh, but again, Palmer's not interested in subtle things like political distinctions. He's interested in headlines and talking tough. On a July evening, again, this is a very quiet residential area of Washington. Uh, one night, about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, uh, Palmer and his wife are cleaning up after dinner, getting ready for bed, normal nighttime activities, when they hear uh, a thump in the front uh, against the front door of their home. Something that sounds like something had been thrown against their front door. This sounds unusual, but what comes next is even more unusual. About a minute later, Palmer and his wife hear a loud explosion from coming from the front of their house. And when the dust settles and the smoke clears, it is apparent that a bomb has just gone off in the front of their house. The house itself has been very badly damaged. In fact, the entire front facade of the home has been torn away and the house is exposed kind of like a doll's house, except obviously with considerably more mess and uh, smoke and things. By a miracle, Palmer and his wife are both fine physically. Uh, they are disoriented. They're not sure what's going on uh, and very covered in uh, white plaster and sort of wandering around dazed. Uh, but physically, they are miraculously fine. They seem to have been in the back of the house and therefore uh, escape unscathed. It is very apparent almost immediately uh, two things. Uh, the first is that this is a very large bomb. It is going to throw people out of their beds all the way up and down the block. It is going to shatter glass as far as five blocks away. This is a very large bomb. The other thing that becomes uh, apparent pretty quickly is the only casualty of the bomb was the bomber as it turns out. Uh, the bomber is, um, well, not to put too fine a point on it or to get too graphic on you, but they find pieces of the bomber all around the surrounding area. They find the bomber's leg across the street on his front stoop. They find his torso hanging from the cornice of a house in the opposite direction. Part of his liver crashes through the window of the Norwegian minister uh, on that same block. Uh, and to give you a sense of how large a bomb this is, the 
the head, the top of the skull of the bomber is blown clear and they later find it uh, on the top of something called the Spanish Steps, which is on S Street. Spanish, if you're from Washington, the Spanish Steps are a lovely, quiet little landmark on a side street. They're uh, basically a staircase. And to give you a sense of the distance that we're talking here, the... Um, the trajectory of the bomber's head must have been launched. It's basically, it goes 100 feet up and about 250 feet uh, in the other direction. So imagine a bomb with the concussive force to propel the bomber's head 100 feet up and 250 feet in the other direction. And you can get a sense of how big this bomb was. It, uh, it throws his head basically two blocks back and up a staircase. So this is a large bomb. And the bomber, obviously 1919, they didn't have DNA testing. And so the bomber's identity is was a question. There's no way to identify the body that's been too badly destroyed. And uh, again, no DNA. Uh, there had been a lot of anarchist activity in the Washington area over the that previous few weeks. And uh, there's a local anarchist leader named Carlo Valdinacci who stops showing up to his anarchist meetings in the immediate aftermath of the Palmer bombing. So they're fairly certain, uh, it seems like a good clue that he might have had something to do with this. What they think happened, there's two theories. And as the days go on, they do a lot of investigating and they coalesce around two theories. The first is that the bomber was was very bad at wiring the timers uh, on the bomb. And so it went off prematurely. Again, 1919 bombing, this is clearly not a, um, you know, clandestine services type of bomb. This is a pretty crude bombing job. So it's entirely possible that it's made by an amateur that doesn't know really how to wire the timers right. The other theory that they coalesce around is that the bomber just tripped. They think that he put the bomb down on the front stoop and as he was trying to get away, he tripped and therefore was not able to get clear of the bomb radius before it goes off. And that's what ended up happening to him. So the house that you see today is actually quite different. They had to redo the entire front of the house because it had basically been uh, destroyed. Uh, and so it was a really sort of um, impactful moment in Washington, D.C. history. And this is a fascinating story, and I tell this on my tours. And even if the story ended right there, I would still tell this because it's kind of fascinating. However, the Palmer bombing is one of those odd little hinges of history that has ripple effects that affect us to literally the moment that you are listening to this podcast. The Palmer bombing has two really interesting after effects that are still with us and still important. The first of which is it's about when the bombing happens, it is just before 10 o'clock at night. And when the bomb happens, a bunch of neighbors rush to the Palmer house to help out because 
That's what good people do. The first neighbor to get to the Palmer house is their neighbor who lives directly across the street. The gentleman had just been coming home from a night out. In fact, him and his wife had been out to dinner with some friends. They had driven their car down the street, parked on the street, and walked into their home. Uh, the, the wife, uh, the lady of the house, was walking up the stairs to check on the children, and the husband was still standing in the foyer when the bomb goes off. Why is this significant? Well, there is evidence to suggest that the bomber, Carlo Valdinacci or otherwise, saw the car drive down the street, waited until the couple had parked their car and gotten into their house before he sets off the bomb. This is a big deal. Had this couple been coming home from dinner two minutes, a minute, even 30 seconds uh, later than they did, they would have been driving by when the bomb goes off. The bomber would not have seen them and they would have gotten caught in this very large bomb and who knows what would have happened to them. This is significant because living across the street from A. Mitchell Palmer at that time was uh, the assistant secretary of the Navy, a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Had they been coming home at a different time, they would have been caught in this bomb uh, and American history in the 20th century would be a very, very different place. A lot of people push back on the idea that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was running across the street. I should mention this is 1919, two years before he gets the polio uh, that is going to largely cripple him. Uh, so he still was uh, mobile at that time. The other ripple effect uh, of the Palmer bombing is. the It appears, and it, this again is going to take a couple of days to uh, um, sort of, this is going to take a couple of days to come out in the news and things, but there appear to have been several other bombing plots set up for that same night in different cities around the country. Philadelphia, Boston, New York. None of them end up happening, but there apparently was some sort of coordinated event uh, that evening. It was some sort of coordinated bombing attack. Now, Palmer, the attorney general, he's been on the job for less than a year. And in fact, this is his second bombing. There's been a bombing sent to his office that does not go off. But I feel pretty strongly that anybody who's been bombed twice is, this is going to freak, freak you out if you've been in two bombings uh, in less than a year particularly considering it seems like there's an uptick in uh, anarchist bombing activity. There it was a coordinated attack. And so Palmer is going to understandably freaked out. Uh, he is going to use this as an excuse to really go after subversives, communists, anarchists, uh, and he really is going to sort of crack down and starting very quickly after that, he's going to launch something called the Palmer Raids, uh, which are going to be anti-communist raids. They're very famous, uh, a red scare in 1920. He's going to go hardcore after uh, communists nationwide. And part of the reason that he that he 
conflates communists and anarchists in his head. I mentioned earlier, he doesn't seem to make the distinction. Part of that is because there is someone who works for him that is telling him that they're all bad. He doesn't really need to make the distinction, but there is a young lawyer at the Justice Department that keeps telling him, particularly in the wake of all this uh, bombing activity, that communists and anarchists are, they come from the same place, they're both subversive, they're both both groups are bad and that they're infiltrating the government. They're infiltrating the State Department. Uh, and if this language is going to start to sound familiar to you, it should. Uh, this young lawyer gets Palmer's patronage. And under Palmer's sort of um, supervision, this young lawyer gains power. And eventually, five years after this, the young lawyer, whose name is J. Edgar Hoover, is going to set up the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. So Palmer, the Palmer bombing is going to freak him out so badly that he starts to listen to J. Edgar Hoover and he starts to go after communists in a big way, helping to set up Hoover at the FBI and create the FBI for exactly sort of this purpose. Uh, Hoover is going to uh, run the FBI uh up until the 1970s. So he's very much in control. And it is, if Palmer had not patronized him, if Palmer had not listened to him, there is every indication that Hoover would have gone on to a very unremarkable career uh, as a lawyer at Justice at the Justice Department. But because Palmer is so freaked out, uh, he uh, really listens to Hoover and the FBI is created uh, and is still with us to this day. So that's going to be um, sort of the the two big after effects of uh, this Palmer bombing. Now, there aren't a lot of uh, remnants of the Palmer bombing today. The house still exists. Uh, 2132 R Street Northwest is still there. Like I said, it's a private residence. Uh, across the street, the home that Franklin Roosevelt and his wife lived in uh, is today part of the Embassy of Mali. Uh, so that is still there. And I mentioned the Spanish Steps. They are also still in Washington, D.C. They uh, descend from uh, S Street, uh, and they're a lovely little oasis in a quiet little neighborhood today. Uh, but the Palmer bombing is, I think, one of the more fascinating areas uh, of Washington, uh, sort of little hinges of history that we kind of forget about that have real uh, important effects on uh, D.C., on the federal government, and on our life in American history in the 20th century. So that's why I love to tell this story uh, on my tours, because it just is so, it's so far back. Uh, the 100th anniversary was last summer, but it's also so present at the same time. And so history kind of ripples uh, out from the Palmer bombing. Both of these stories are something we tell on our Dark Side of DuPont uh, tour. Uh, there is a great, it's a great tour with a lot of scandals and sort of adult content, uh, perfect for this time of year. So if you're interested in In Washington, come and take the tour. We can show you these spots in person and tell you some of more of the stories of the area. Uh, if you liked the podcast, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to us. We love to interact with our listeners. Uh, you can find us and in any number of places. Uh, we are. Uh, you can email us tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We are on the Twitters 
at Tour Guide Tell. We're on Instagram and Facebook, Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we have a merchandise store. Uh, you can buy t-shirts and things related to the pod, which is really cool. And there's a bunch of stuff on there that I kind of want to get. Uh, there is a lot of uh, fun stuff. You can also become a Patreon subscriber. They get extra bonus content as well as a um, percentage off of our merchandise store. If that is not an option. We love it if people would subscribe, rate, and review us on I iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or however you get your podcasts. It really does help uh, to get this podcast in front of as many eyes as possible. Uh, so thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Becca and I will both be back next week to talk about the Constitution for Constitution Day. And uh, thank you so much. Have a great one. 